This is a message for those that work in manufacturing across the UK and Ireland. Do your engineering maintenance stores keep you awake at night? Are your engineers spending excessive time sourcing and finding the spare parts they need? Eric's on-site teams take responsibility for your indirect supply chain, including both your MRO procurement and inventory control. And, as the name suggests, we do this while being based on your site. For more information, visit www.erics.co.uk forward slash em. This episode of Engineering Matters is supported by The Optimistic Outlook. The Optimistic Outlook is a great listen for fans of Engineering Matters. It is a podcast for anyone intrigued by innovation across sectors, whether you're in healthcare, infrastructure, energy or beyond. The show is hosted by Barbara Hampton, CEO of Siemens USA, and offers invaluable insights relevant and impactful for all industries. I think what you're really going to like is that Barbara Hampton is not just a CEO, she's a thought leader in the corporate world. In the podcast, you often learn from her journey to the top of Siemens USA, getting invaluable lessons on leadership, decision-making, and navigating the complexities of the modern workplace. Barbara brings a wealth of knowledge, not just about manufacturing, but about its ripple effects across all sectors. Her perspective illuminates how manufacturing innovations are setting the pace for changes in healthcare, infrastructure development, energy sustainability, and more. Regardless of your industry, the optimistic outlook is a source of motivation and forward-thinking ideas. Barbara's expertise in connecting dots between manufacturing and other sectors reveals actionable strategies for innovation and leadership in any field. We invite you to explore the optimistic outlook and join a broad audience that values transformative ideas, including us. Search for the optimistic outlook wherever you get your podcasts. What do you do when a flood warning sounds? If you've read the advice governments in flood-prone areas offer, you'll have an emergency bag packed and be ready to leave in a hurry. Guidance like this will help. It's based on shared experiences of previous disasters. It's shared as widely as possible. The next morning, you'll need to start looking at how to rebuild your life. Repairing your home or finding temporary accommodation. Perhaps even moving to somewhere else where vital infrastructure is still working. And as you are doing that, others are addressing the bigger challenges. Engineers are examining buildings to see what can be repaired and what must be demolished and replaced. Insurers are calculating the extent of the damage and the payments that must be made. And politicians, locally and nationally, are trying to understand the big picture. They'll direct emergency responders to site and then start looking at how recovery will be funded in the days, months, and years to come. We live in a world where disasters like this have become commonplace. 
climate change increases the frequency and impact of hurricanes and tsunamis, of fires and landslides. And there are some risks that are a novel feature of the modern world. Cyber attacks that can threaten the infrastructural backbone of societies. Whenever a disaster like this happens, there is an immediate challenge. But there's also an opportunity to learn. Engineers can learn more about the solutions that have worked and about where the deepest harms are caused. Insurers can accurately map damage, making detailed assessments of costs and harms on an increasingly granular level. And politicians and civil servants can gain a deeper understanding of the overall social costs. By sharing these lessons, we can build back better. And if we really understand the impact of disaster, we can build back better resilience, setting the cost of engineering solutions against the cost of doing nothing, and understanding the hard political choices that keep people and infrastructure out of harm's way. Hello, and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Johnny Dowling, and I'm Rian Owen. This week, we've partnered with Atkins Realis to look at how very different sectors of the economy in very different parts of the globe can learn from the experience of disaster and share that knowledge, build greater resilience in a world of increasing risk. Everywhere you look and everywhere we see we're seeing the impacts of climate change happening all around the world. The bigger challenge, I think, over the next 10 to 15 years is actually what are we going to do to adapt existing infrastructure, whether that's housing or ports or bridges or whatever in cities. That's Philip Hall. He's president of Engineering Solutions at Atkins Realis. He's also the chair of the Infrastructure Investments and Resilience Group in the UK government's Business of Resilience Task Force. As a global engineering firm, Atkins Realis's work is increasingly focused on helping build a path through the energy transition and designing or upgrading the built environment to tackle the dual challenges of decarbonisation and climate resilience. But, he says, it's not enough to just limit the impact of future climate change. We must work now to address the current impact of climate change. There's obviously an awful lot of work going on around net zero and, you know, many governments have set targets around net zero and the decarbonisation agenda by 2050. And of course, that's absolutely where there needs to be a significant amount of focus. We're only going to deal with the long-term challenges of climate change by taking carbon out of our atmosphere. The need is as pressing to deal with resilience as it is to deal with um, net zero. So it has to be a two-pronged approach to how we're going to tackle this. The UK government perspective on it and, um, and the task force's perspective is that dealing with climate adaptation is difficult to predict in terms of how sea level rise will change or the level of storms and you know the, the amount of rainfall we might receive in any given period. But there needs to be a better solution to looking at climate adaptation and, um, and how we adapt existing infrastructure to do that. Sid Miller works alongside Philip on the task force as a member of the Climate Risk and Disaster Finance Group. He helped steer the recovery programme in Christchurch after the city was rocked by a devastating earthquake in 2011. He's a member of the Business of Resilience Task Force, 
working alongside Philip and more than 30 other experts, including Julian Anoisi, who chairs the task force's cyber and terrorism subgroup, and Dominic Christian, who chairs the climate risk and funding subgroup. I agree with absolutely everything that Philip's just said there. What I would add, though, is, and it does relate to that Christchurch side, is understanding really the sort of the role of the community in here. We often talk about things like build back better, but I, I sort of like to refer to it as sort of build back better resilience, um, because we we are in a you know an evolutionary sort of time of these challenges of the growing sort of risk that we're dealing with. Yet we've also got these you know risks that we've always dealt with, like earthquakes. So what we really need to do, I think, is is, is bring the community uh, much more into this sort of discussion around how they can deal with these sort of challenges. Sid's background is in the insurance sector. In Christchurch, he saw firsthand the challenges of responding to disaster. The uh, New Zealand Earthquake Commission you know, was, a, was a good example of a, a scheme that had been set up to deal with a, a disaster, you know, a large-scale disaster like the earthquake. So the, the financial sort of response was there. The challenge was then actually how do you recover a city and actually how do you support the people of that city from a socio-economic point of view. And I think actually that's where a number of the challenges occurred because what do you want your city to look like in the future? And as an insurer, he has seen how the increasing frequency and impact of disaster is undermining the insurance market. This is particularly true in areas that are, due to the impact of climate change, facing increasing flooding. So one of the things with insurance is, you know, you're, it's a, a probability of something occurring. When that is happening every year at the same time, but the probability is, um, you know, it's 100%. So it's not it's not insurance anymore. It's actually um, you know we've got a we've got a routine disaster occurring. The problem that creates for the insurance industry is you've actually got people who will make decisions either you know not to insure or you end up with underinsurance. And you know for governments that's a very serious issue because they're still going to have to deal with it. So how do we come together if you like as an as an insurance industry with the you know the infrastructure industry the engineering industry, in partnership to go well if we don't have insurance we're fundamentally changing the fabric of our whole sort of financial way of life we're moving risk to other areas where it wasn't previously insurance is a bet and a betting market doesn't work if everyone involved knows the outcome in advance. Without insurance, the state must meet the needs of those impacted by disaster. To avoid this, we must either prevent people exposing themselves to unavoidable harms, or we must mitigate the impact and likelihood of those harms, so that the insurance market can function. If we keep building in certain places on floodplains, we're not going to be able to insure it because the risk is is only increasing. So people need to understand that level of flood risk that exists unless somebody takes some action to build sort of, let's say, a flood barrier. Today, that sort of information, if you like, is, is quite asymmetric. 
In many places, individuals and local governments lack the knowledge of risk needed to help them decide whether to permit new building or to move into a new property. In others, as Philip saw on a recent fact-finding visit, the risk is so high that only drastic action is possible. One municipality that I won't mention was talking about managed retreat. And uh, they were the words that they used to describe how they will have to abandon some assets and buildings and etc. at their current shoreline because they don't feel they can address the insurance gap and they don't feel they can afford the climate adaptation work that would need to be done. Members of the Business of Resilience Task Force have been working on a concept that helps understand how these challenges impact resilience. It's called the triple gap. The triple gap is that actually there is a very significant funding gap between, you know, the amount of work that needs the amount of work that needs to be done to support that climate adaptation, you know, physical infrastructure changes and other things that you might do to support that, nature-based solutions around it. Um, there is a growing gap in insurance. It's becoming virtually impossible to insure in some areas of the world against flood risk, for example. And um and people are choosing not to insure as a consequence of doing that. The third area um, is really about, um, you know, the whole thing around um, just dealing with the impact of disruption and, um, and when there's a major climate disaster. So if you look at something like um, the number of billion dollar insurance events in the US, you know, that's increased significantly from 2014 to 2021 because, you know, there is just a massive gap in terms of the amount of funding required to deal with the impacts of a hurricane or post-hurricane or, or tsunami or whatever the, the weather event might be. There is a gap between the funds needed to support climate adaptation and the funds available. There is a gap between the potential and, in fact, likely harm caused by disaster and the protection the insurance market can offer. And there is a gap between the costs of the recovery work and the state's ability to meet those costs. These gaps affect everyone. Most importantly, they affect those whose homes and neighbourhoods are hit by catastrophe but they also affect broader society as states are forced to divert funds to recovery. And they affect private sector businesses, insurers who cannot offer insurance, engineers who cannot properly assess the risk to projects of potential catastrophe. Closing these gaps will require a whole-of-society response based on partnership. And that is what Sid, Philip and the other members of the Business of Resilience Task Force have been doing. Our task force was about actually using the great infrastructure capability that we have in the UK and, um, and the phenomenal engineering talent that we deploy around the world, coupled with London being the centre of global insurance markets. The task force, set up by the UK Department of Business and Trade, aims in part to look at how Britain can export services based on these skills. But it's also about bringing together industries, such as engineering and financial services, where Britain has traditionally been strong, and sharing their knowledge. The more we can get data and information out to actually help people understand the risk and become party to the decision-making processes, the faster we'll actually move in terms of um, improving the situation and investing, I actually believe, greater sums of money in, in resilience because it'll be supported by the public. In fact, more, the public will demand it. If we come together and start to invest better in resilience, can we actually create something that's a future sustainable insurance industry and maintains that sort of fabric?
right at the heart of business of resilience is a systems-based approach to deal with this problem. Because if we carry on doing what we're doing, the situation's only going to get worse. It's not going to get better. By engaging with other experts, engineers like Philip can see how their skills can best be deployed, meeting the desires of local communities and the wider social and market need for resilience. From an engineering perspective, we can solve almost everything. And, um, you know, building everything on a five metre high stilts, you know, is technically feasible, but, you know, might not be the right solution that you want to have in, in every area of the world. One of the ways engineers can fit the solutions they offer to these disparate needs is by learning from the rich data generated by the insurance industry. That's really the beauty of the work that we've been doing around business of resilience is saying, how do you find other ways of injecting capital money into climate adaptation solutions? And one way of doing that is to create this holistic approach around, um, you know, your ability to insure an asset in the future um, is predicated on its ability to not be impacted by these climate change pieces. In order to set premiums or to decide if it is possible to offer cover at all, insurers must carefully study the likelihood of an adverse event. That has driven the industry's investment in ever more sophisticated means of assessing damage and calculating future risks. The sophistication we have in engineering and insurance around modelling and understanding risk is unparalleled. And particularly in the UK, you know, and even through the academic institutions, the way we use that has historically been quite fragmented. And we look at it through our sort of individual lens, whether it be the engineering, the investment, it will be insurance, be banking even. So if we were able to sort of look at that through a sort of a single lens, because what we want to do is create more resilience infrastructure, more resilient communities, then if we were to bring that modeling together and understand it as a collective, then I actually think that would encourage much more resilient investment. The knowledge is there. But communities, planners and political leaders need access to this knowledge if they're to make the right choices about investments in climate adaptation and risk mitigation. That's where we need the acceleration, is, is coming together to understand the problem through a single view and then working together as to how best to invest in resilience. It's about sharing that knowledge and making sure the lessons learned from disasters are heard by everyone who needs to hear them. We don't, I think, properly articulate the cost and impact of a major climate event. And, um, you know, the disruption to people's lives, the disruption to the economy, the cost of the rebuild, you know, potentially the, you know, and as we've seen, the loss of life and, uh, and the impact of that. And, um, and I think we've got to factor all of these things in as we're starting to, to think you know, more clearly about, you know, how we drive more resilient solutions around the world. Many of the communities most affected by disaster are also those who have been affected by historical injustice. The listening and knowledge sharing promoted by groups like the Business of Resilience Task Force must include these communities. It should give them a voice and it should speak to them directly. We have to be an, um, incredibly conscious of the potential equity gap here. Those communities that, that can afford, or those societies that can afford to basically deal with this issue, um, as opposed to those that can't. 
there are lots of different groups looking at resilience at the moment, climate resilience in particular, and thinking about, you know, how do we ensure that that equity gap is closed? Because, um, you know, that's not a great place for us to be in as a society. Sid recently attended the Pacific Islands Forum to share some of the knowledge of international experts and to hear what the people of the Pacific Islands want for their own future. This is a region where life is lived close to the sea and that faces urgent challenges from climate change. There's a tremendous pride amongst these communities. You know, and they, you know, they're dependent on the on the sea for, you know, many years of, of, of through generations in their families. But they're incredibly vulnerable and the water is, you know, lapping up against the villages now. And for them it's they they don't want to change their way of life as i don't think any of us sort of do but what they need is is how can they be supported to um effectively be more resilient to the challenges that they face and that sort of particularly at a building um and and community level and be protected from those sort of the, the shocks that occur this is a community with a legacy of innovation exploration. The ancestors of Pacific Islanders were the first to explore much of the planet, from Taiwan to Hawaii and Easter Island or Rapa Nui, to New Zealand or Aotearoa. Every time they've settled in a new homeland, they've adapted their way of life to the environment, and they want to continue to be leaders in environmental adaptation. What they need is they need solutions that they can be part of and that can build, if you like, future resilience amongst their communities. So it's not just come in with a great idea and go do this and then and then leave. They want to work with sort of entities so their country is more resilient for the future. And through the Business of Resilience Task Force and other forums, experts from around the globe can join these communities as they build local resilience. There's a moral obligation for organisations like ours um, to play their part in doing that. We've got to play our part in, uh, in resolving and dealing with um, the issues that our society faces. That is the role of the civil engineer. That's why I became an engineer in the first place. The world's engineers can share their knowledge of what has worked elsewhere. As Philip said earlier, this may be the hard engineering of raising buildings and erecting flood defences. But it also might include softer approaches that still make use of cutting-edge techniques of risk assessment, drawing on both engineering expertise and the insights of the insurance sector. One of the things we haven't talked about but mentioned is things like nature-based solutions, you know, so finding ways to work with communities like the, the Pacific Islands that we were just speaking about to, to adapt how they live and how they, you know, they build their communities, you know, to, to deal, to provide nature-based solutions, sharing that knowledge, you know, and, uh, and just making that available. There's many great initiatives, the Sustainable Markets Initiative, which, you know, the King is, is behind, and the Insurance Task Force, which is led by Lloyds, uh, and you've got the Insurance Development Forum as well, which is looking at developing sort of schemes for low economic countries. By sharing knowledge on hard and soft approaches to climate adaptation, experts from the world's leading economies can help deliver resilience. 
This work needs to be done before disaster strikes. And that means this is a looming priority for all of us, as climate change makes such catastrophes more likely everywhere. Using those events, there's a lot of learnings around actually what does resilience really mean from a community perspective in terms of how that city would operate, what you build, where you build it, why you build it, how, how do you reduce the impact of future events on that city and then have something that the community is engaged in, in terms of what that looks like and why they want to live there for the future and, and for generations ahead. Once disaster strikes, more immediate concerns take over. I don't think a lot of that is sort of at a community level was was perhaps as well thought through as it could have been um, at Christchurch. And, and that's not a criticism at all. It's actually when you're overwhelmed by dealing with such a large event, you know, you really are focusing on, on helping people as much as you can. Any harm caused by a disaster like this reflects a failure. But it also presents the opportunity to learn and do better. The ability to learn and not forget from these events is so important for the future. And I think that's where, you know, the insurance industry has a lot of those learnings, as does the engineering industry, but from different perspectives. The benefit of sharing some of the modelling and then the information that comes from that, that allows people and communities to make different decisions. The more sophisticated the, the modelling technique they have, the better able you are to predict some of those future impacts and therefore to make more informed decisions. We can't change the priorities we face when disaster happens. But we can change how we set our priorities around the risk of disaster. As a world, we're, uh, we're better at responding to emergencies when they happen and um, rather than predicting them and putting preventative measures in place at first. So, you know, we've got to switch that balance and, um, and switch thinking to, uh, to think about that. This was one of the outcomes of Sid's work in Christchurch. Not just rebuilding the city, but creating a new model that plans resilience at the heart of every planning decision. We actually looked at, well, we've... We've created a transformative model that we can deal better with future earthquakes and the insurance industry. I mean, it's a public-private partnership. It shares data. The Earthquake Commission, or EQC, can now bring prevention and mitigation to the heart of its work. That's going to be far better investment for an organisation like sort of EQC, an insurance organisation in the future, is actually investing in that front-end prevention because that's where the opportunity is. By making resilience partnerships and knowledge sharing commonplace, we can avoid the short-term thinking that sometimes plagues both democratic societies and private companies. If the costs of catastrophe are built into our decision-making, we can look beyond the next election or earnings report. A lot of societies are beholden to spend driven by a political cycle. 
people will put money after the event into trying to prevent an event happening in the same location and uh, because they've seen the impact of the disaster and the impact it's had on people's lives and so politically that can be a, a strong thing to do. The, the bringing together of the insurance and infrastructure sectors in the way that we're talking about here is about finding new ways of injecting capital. Building resilience is a shared endeavour. Through groups like the Business of Resilience Task Force, industry leaders like Sid and Philip are able to share their expertise with each other and with the wider community. It is incumbent on industry to work alongside um, you know, those types of, of partners to, to really help understand that because um, you know, otherwise we, we will move forward far too slowly and much more slowly than we need to. What do we need to do to encourage a widespread focus on resilience? We need to share what we have each learned from our own work. Raising that level of, of awareness is the first thing. I think the second thing is to you know, have evidence and case studies of the positive impacts and benefits of doing prevention rather than cure. I just don't think we have enough visibility and enough access to um, those types of examples and case studies that would really help organisations move faster. The heightened awareness will allow us to look further as we plan new projects and implement climate mitigation strategies. It will allow us to develop sophisticated techniques to understand disaster and risk. And it will give local authorities and first responders the tools they need to address the immediate impact of disaster. I call it event readiness, and um, which, which when you talk about it, seems like, oh, well, I've just got to be ready for tomorrow. No, actually, you've got to be ready for hundreds of years. You know, it goes beyond, you know, our lifetimes. Um, but actually, um, I'm pretty sure in the engineering world, they'll go through lots of scenario analysis in terms of what might be the right solution. Well, this actually should be just an active part of life in terms of actually thinking about, you know, how do you respond? What do you do? Are we ready to respond? Because actually investing in that can make a major difference in terms of the speed of a recovery. Technology is definitely playing a bigger part in helping predict the future, as well as being able to build predictive analytics and use AI as part of the modeling approach. Um, there's also the opportunity to take physical data and, um, and use that data alongside the model to validate, you know, the change that you're seeing. The insurance and engineering sectors are already bringing the power of partnership to bear on the challenges of resilience. We've got to deploy the technology that's available to us. And there are some great startups actually across the UK who are thinking of some quite clever solutions to think about flooding and flood risk. And, um, and, um, and you know, it's an area where, you know, I think we can definitely get, make better use of technology as we move forward. The insurance industry is looking at more and more ways that you can use that technology to um, effectively get a claim paid um, even faster for, for somebody and minimise the almost the, the, the level of uh, sort of disruption, if you like, in terms of assessing the damage and all the rest of these things. It, there is an awful lot of work going on in that space from different entities around how you take sort of open source modelling and provide it to those communities as partly as public education, if you like. It's just as important to share information within organisations as it is between them. That has been very much a focus for Philip in his day job, as well as his work with groups like the Business of Resilience Task Force. 
Organizations must find ways to share specialist knowledge and experience internally, as well as collaborating with others. It's about better connecting skills and capabilities wherever they are in the world. And, and actually, um, you know, that's about creating networks for knowledge sharing. It's about connecting like-minded individuals together who might be delivering similar services in one part of the world um, and enabling them to connect and to talk and to share and to learn from each other. And then it's very much about understanding that capability and being able to deploy that to a customer wherever they are. Over the next couple of years, you know, we're really, really going to be ensuring that we're using both the latest digital technology combined with our great people and the, some of the game-changing brilliance we've got in the organisation to, to basically deploy that where it's needed the most. And while climate change may present the biggest shared challenge for humanity today, other rapidly emerging threats to resilience must not be overlooked. I know we've talked a lot about climate resilience so far, and of course, you know, that's a very front of mind topic. You know, cyber resilience and the increasing threats and challenges posed by, by cyber attack. And, you know, that can be on businesses, but it can also be on critical national infrastructure. And the more that we digitize our assets and the more that we uh, use technology to run and, and manage our critical national infrastructure, then the risk of cyber attack and the cyber threat increases. Let's say, for example, a major wastewater treatment plant was attacked from a cyber perspective and could no longer treat our water and push out fresh water to, to citizens, then you know the impact of that could be pretty extreme. So we're also thinking about that from a, an insurance and infrastructure perspective in terms of how do we ensure we're protecting our, our national infrastructure from those cyber attacks, but conversely, how do we insure against loss? That's equally applicable across the insurance world as well because you any sort of cyber attack that's or that's going to close down a service is going to interrupt how that sort of community or how society is going to operate and whether that's you know could be a hospital could be could be transport systems it could be a whole range of systems but how do you understand what that interruption is the the impact of that and if you're a local authority what you might need to insure against in terms of that happening which might not be the you're insuring directly against the, the cyber attack but what you're actually covering is the the impact that has occurred um, at a societal community level the business of resilience task force published its first summary report in 2022 it continues to work and to build its membership for sid and philip their work on sharing the uk's expertise continues and the next chance to do so will come at COP28 in Abu Dhabi, which starts next week. COP26 in Glasgow was the first COP that really began to consider climate resilience as a factor in the overall piece. And some of the discussions towards the end of COP26 were like that. Um, what we're seeing in COP28 is there is an agenda around climate resilience. Um, I'm actually going to be speaking at COP28 myself on this very topic that we're talking about today. And, um, and, and I think that, um, you know, that recognition that whilst decarbonisation has to remain a priority for nations. Um, dealing with the impact and ravages of climate change and um, is super important and therefore more focus needs to be put on it. So I fully expect to see a much stronger conversation about how we drive climate resilience 
uh, ahead of you know the decarbonisation programmes that we're putting in place. So I think it will feature much heavily as part of COP28. I agree totally. And, and likewise involved in you know, initiatives that are looking at, you know, how do you protect communities um, in this sort of period whilst we, you know, we address the, the decarbonisation problems? How do we support, um, you know, low-income countries? How do we support island nations? How can insurance help? How can, you know, infrastructure help? Um, so I think we're really moving into... Um, a, a much sort of stronger direction around action uh, of building resilience and not just you know talking about what could be so i think it's a it's a great time to be having you know the conversation we're having here today and uh, and and to take this opportunity of actually looking at how cross collaboration can can generate better solutions for a resilient future Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and produced by Will North and hosted by me, Johnny Dowling, and by Rian Owen. Editing and series supervision by John Young. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. And the font of shared expertise that helps us build our own resilience is Rory Harris. Thanks to our partner for this episode, Atkins Realis, and thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, and on LinkedIn.